Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This month, we're going to focus specific attention on the topic of communication. So today, our topic is going to be on how best to communicate with millennials. This is a specific population that can be a bit of an enigma for some of us who are older, or should I say more seasoned. To help us with this, our guest today is Dr. Lars Gunner. I first met Dr. Gunner in his first semester of chiropractic school. Since that time, he's built a very successful practice in Pasadena, California. Lars is, himself, a millennial and his practices comprise largely of millennials, a group that he's made a very intentional effort to seek out and communicate with. Dr. Gunner previously recommended to me a book entitled The Coddling of the American Mind. In this book, the author makes the argument that with the millennial generation, we are suffering the consequences of failed parenting strategies. He further narrows it down to three myths that have been forced on millennials since their youth. The first is called the anti-fragility doctrine. It can be summed up with the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second is that your feelings tell what is true and real. And the final one is that every scenario has a good guy and a bad guy, and it's your duty to fight or impede the bad guy. There's a great story, unfortunately it's a true story, about an international math competition. Three Asian countries finished in the top three spots. The United States, of course, finished dead last. They then asked the participants how they thought they did on the math competition. The students from the top three countries rated themselves as average, and were very modest about their abilities. The U.S. students, on the other hand, rated themselves very high. In fact, they rated themselves higher than any other country, in spite of their abysmal results. This prompted the Secretary of Education at the time to comment that it's now obvious that the U.S. school system is much better at teaching self-esteem than it is at teaching math. So today, we're going to talk about the nuances of communicating with this unique group of individuals so we can best share with them the chiropractic story. So without any further ado, Dr. Lars Gunner. Hello, Dr. Gunner. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. You bet. Can you can you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and how you got into Gone State Chiropractic? Oh, man. Um, so this story starts when I'm, I think I was about 16 years old, and I actually had a football injury. And at that time, it, it was a subtle decline, and then finally like a big hit. And I wasn't able to play anymore. I wasn't able to lift. I wasn't able to run. I wasn't able to do the things I wanted to do. And I had never experienced chiropractic before. Um, I saw massage therapists, I saw PTs, I saw personal trainers, saw orthopedic surgeons. No one really had an answer for me and finally ended up in a chiropractic office, took some x-rays, did a full exam, um, told me what was going on with me. And then he did whatever he did to me. He adjusted me at the time. I didn't know what he did. And about 50% of my pain, like right away, went away. And at that time, like I couldn't sit for longer than about 30 seconds without lightning pain going into my feet or numbness going into my feet and blinding back pain. And then I remember sitting up and kind of being amazed and looking at the doctor and being like, I don't know what you do, but I think I need to learn how to do this. <laughs> and he kind of laughed at me. And I'm sure he hears that a lot. And at that time, I just finished high school, went to college, started studying, kind of forgot about chiropractic, and then had another injury. Ended up back in a chiropractor's office, realized remembered what I said when I was 16 years old. And then, then I was off to the races, went to chiropractic school and now practicing Gonstead. 
somehow found my way back to that very office that the guy actually helped me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of an amazing part is that you're now working in your mentor's office. <laughs> and, and What's was, that like? <laughs> it, well, for anybody that's actually met Dr. Ping, he's he's very much like the the young at heart guy. So even though he's like well in his sixties and taught generations of chiropractors, I show up every day and he has more energy than I do. So he's definitely one that lifts me up. But it's it's a little surreal how all the the events kind of synchronized and, and got me into here. Right as I graduated, there was space and just went off to the races and he just told me you don't get patients in the office, you get patients out of the office. So get out, market yourself and do good work, be kind, love people, and you will have a practice bigger than what you'll know to do. And just that example that he still leads was pretty inspiring. So it's, it's been really humbling and really inspiring to be in this office and also a little surreal. <laughs> it's funny because Dr. Ping was actually one of the first Gonset doctors I ever met as well. Um, I think he was the third Gonset doctor I ever met um, and I was in school and he came and the very first time it was like, this, this guy is so much fun. We can't help but learn. So it's great that we talk about him because we know that he won't listen to this podcast at all because he doesn't know how to use technology. So we can oh, say no. anything we want about him and there's nothing he can do about it. You'll never even know, oh. <laughs> but, but we can pat him on the back because he really did a great job and it really made it so that, um, as we always say about him, he's the kind of guy that can tell you, you suck to your face and you'll mm -hmm. laugh and thank him for it. Mm -hmm, so, exactly. And so when you're trying to learn, having somebody be able to tell you, yeah, you're totally doing that wrong, but do it in a way that you appreciate is very helpful. <laughs> and I remember a couple of years ago, it was, it was a revelation when you started to learn how to text message. So <laughs> he, he was like, Hey, I got a new phone. Here's text. And he would always finish the text with like his signature at the bottom, Dr. Ping. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so today we wanted to talk about communication since we're talking about his failure to text. Um, we <laughs> want to talk about communication, um, but we want to, actually for this whole month, I'm going to be talking about communication, but today we're going to specifically talk about communication with millennials because um, it seems like, I guess the best way to delineate this is I, I was just, I was just thinking about this last night and it came to me and, and um, I kind of wrote myself some notes on it because I wasn't sure I'd be able to communicate it clearly if I didn't, um, kind of what I was thinking. But there's this pattern that I see that millennials prefer extremism. So you see it in their exercise with things like CrossFit, you see it in their diet that they're either vegan or carnivore. Um, <laughs> we see it politically, and I'm not even going to go there. Yeah. Um, but we see it everywhere that millennials have this preference for extremism as though if you're not extreme, then you're not really committed, you're not really passionate, you're not really into it. And where I can see a conflict in that is that for myself as a Gen Xer, Gen Xers tend to be really middle of the road people. Mm. Uh, you know, every generation is influenced by the people around them. And so for us, we had the baby boomers before us. Um, mm -hmm. And they were just so loose and free with everything that there's that in Gen Xers, you see a tendency to be a little bit more conservative than the freedom of the baby boomers, but not so conservative because not so conservative that we're uptight and we can't adapt. And so there's like this pragmatic, we're trying to find the middle balancing point where we can see a little bit of good on either side. And how do we take the good from this side and the good from this side and put them together so we have nothing but good and none of the bad? That's generally how a Gen Xer likes to think. So then when you've got a Gen X doctor like me and you've got a millennial patient, you potentially have this communication conflict, whereas you come in and kind of explain these from these nice balanced middle point 
and they leave going, yeah, I don't know if he really knows what he's talking about. I'm not sure he's passionate enough about this to really be mm -hmm. into it. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely a potential conflict there. Is, is that something that you see? I don't, I mean, you're a millennial, so. <laughs> but is that something that you can observe? I mean, even if you look like a Dr. Ping, obviously he's not a Gen X or a millennial. He's going to have a different communication with his patients. And mm -hmm. I'm going to guess he probably doesn't have as many, as many millennials as patients as you do. Mm -hmm. yeah. So is that something you see? It's funny that you mention it like that. It's the communication that you're describing to me resonates with me, but I, I can take a step back and observe it. People, when they hear middle of the road things, as far as millennials, this is me speaking with like conjecture, they see it as watery. They see it like you don't really have conviction about what you do. And there, there has not been enough profound experiences like in a, in a young person's life for them to take a watery opinion and to extrapolate it into what they believe. So they need to hear in absolutes what you believe and why you believe it and enough so much that they believe that you believe what you believe. So if they hear a watery opinion and they kind of take a step back and they're like, well, I'm not that convinced. He, he seems smart, but I don't know if he really knew what he was talking about because I can go on, on the internet and find someone that's going to yell whatever opinion in the camera. And when I, get that type of motivation when someone's yelling with an opinion, they're going to find more conviction and more believability in that just behind the, the sheer emotion. Yeah. So people are driven by those, those emotional experiences. And I think they're, they're living these flattened emotional lives. I mean, for, as you tap into social media, let's use that as an example just even the idea of saying, oh, have, did you see someone's story today, like Instagram or Facebook? Did you see that story? Did you see that story pop up? When you zoom out of that that idea, like when we live in stories, we're not actually even living in the moment. And we're not even observing our own story anymore. We're observing other people's story. So we're removing ourselves from our own life and from the present moment and projecting this story that we're getting relayed from someone else on how to feel, how to think and how to act. So when they hear a watery opinion, they don't know what to do. So they kind of freeze or they fail to act. And it takes a lot of internal motivation and a specific mindset, I believe as far as like a millennial because of certain parenting tactics and certain ideas that were perpetuated through, I don't know, sports accolades, things like that. So we need to hear intense motivation and emotional responses to actually act or believe the person that's in front of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can totally see how that happens. And we were talking earlier about um, about the emotion of things, um, storytelling, and are you communicating the story and letting people find their own emotions or are you telling them the emotion they should feel? And mm -hmm. it's true that people kind of want to be, it's a very subtle way of telling them the emotion they should feel because if you're yelling at somebody and telling them how passionate they go, yeah, I should be that passionate too. So it's mm -hmm. a very subtle, tricky way of creating the emotion you want. And then when you see things like what's broadcast on TV and things like that, I know mm -hmm. you've read uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. and he talks about the availability heuristic. Mm -hmm. And I, once I knew about that, I see this in effect all the time, that if you can convince somebody, like I think the example he gives in the book has to do with um, the odds of being kidnapped and murdered. Mm -hmm. And if you ask people what the odds are, they will over, always overestimate it. And the reason why is the media is always putting it in front of us. So because it's always there, and if somebody says murder and kidnap, you immediately go, oh, I can think of a story when somebody was kidnapped and murdered. 
-hmm. therefore it must happen a lot. Mm -hmm. So the availability heuristic makes you overestimate how often it actually happens. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the numbers of how often it actually happens, you realize it's extremely rare, like crazy rare. Yeah. And it's at an all time low. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually lower than it's ever been. And so really the reason people estimate it to be more, um, they say it was, uh, people think it's more dangerous now than it was in the seventies. And yet it actually was more dangerous in the seventies. It's just that in the seventies, nobody knew about it. So because it wasn't available, we underestimated it. And now everybody knows about it when it, on the rarity that it happens. So we overestimate it. And so mm-hmm. it's easy. For, I, I, there's no doubt that people in the media have read the book as well. <laughs> oh, so yeah. they know you can massively influence thought just by making things available. So we see this in chiropractic. If somebody wanted to, and I hate to suggest this, <laughs> fortunately, it happens so rarely that a chiropractor hurts somebody. Mm-hmm. If it was even, if, if there was, say, five cases a year, if they reported those five cases every year and they hammered it over and over and over and over, they could convince people that it was happening all the time every day. Oh, yeah. Whereas on the flip side, iatrogenic medicine or iatrogenic disease, which in Latin means at the hand of the healer. So doctor caused death is the third leading cause of death in the United States. And yet nobody knows about it. Why? Because it will never be reported. So mm-hmm. it works in opposite as well. If you never talk about something that's blatantly obvious, Nobody's ever going to know about it. And then they underestimate how often it's actually happening. Because when you think about what we've just done with COVID, if people knew that 20,000 people a month die at the hands of their doctor, we would be shutting down the hospitals. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to happen. No. Um, or if, if we knew that, I forget the number, it's something like 600,000 people a month die of heart disease. Mm-hmm. We'd be shutting down McDonald's, not saying they're essential. Oh, yeah. Like, those are the decisions that happen. But that availability heuristic gives you maximum control over people's thought processes and through emotion. Oh, it's mind control. It's heart control. As soon as you tap into to fear mechanisms. And I, like, I believe, um, I believe Joe Dispenza says that he believes that growth, health and wellness can be just as infectious as fear and disease. And when you perpetuate fear and disease, um, whether it be about COVID, whether it be about, injuries, whether it be about chiropractic injuries, to, to be clear, or any anything within the realm, people are going to inherently drive with that fear because we have two different motivators. We have fear and love as a motivator, and not a lot of people know what love is or how to actually describe it or what the experience is. So they're going to drive with fear, especially because it's pounded in front of their face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can get people, you should be able to cognitively control your emotions. But when you can get the emotions in control and get the tail wagging the dog, <laughs> then you really have power over people. And of course, there are always people who are power hungry. They want that. My, my wife and I were actually just talking about this last night, that right now in our society, what we see is that if you can effectively manipulate people, there's a reward in that there's no punishment. Mm-hmm. So if it's rewarded and not punished, why in the world would you not want to become the best people manipulator you can and you can see mm-hmm. that there's a competition to be the best manipulator and to mm. manipulate people's emotions and to manipulate their actions and to manipulate their thoughts and to manipulate their desires and just manipulate all of it. It's all manipulation. It's not influence. We've gone from influence to manipulation mm-hmm. and it is a subtle difference, but it's a profound one. It's telling people what to think, not how to think. Yeah. Which I think is a good segue to lead us right into um, this book we were talking about. Um, we talked before and you uh, suggested I read this book called the coddling of the American mind. And I cannot remember the author's name. Jonathan Haidt. I feared you'd know. <laughs> so, um, so we talked about this book and um, 
I was blown away right from the very beginning. Well, actually, for me personally, just the title itself blew me away because that word coddling, I was like, yes, coddling, that is the key word. And so um, in fact, I, when I heard the word, when I saw the word coddling, the very first thing I thought of, I flashed back to being 10 years old in my fifth grade class, and we brought in an incubator and we put chicken eggs in the incubator. Mm -hmm. And we and they would sit in there and they sat in there for however long they sit in there. As a as a ten year old, it felt like about three years. <laughs> but they were in there seemingly for forever, and then one day, somebody notices one of the chickens is breaking out. There's always somebody who wants to open the incubator and start peeling away the eggshell to allow the chicken an easier passage because we want to be kind to the chicken, we want to help the chicken, mm -hmm. and you have to explain to them that you cannot do that for the chicken because the struggle is what makes them strong enough to survive. Mm -hmm. And if we take away the struggle, we're actually killing the chicken. Mm -hmm. And I thought that is it. We've coddled these kids and we've taken away the struggle from growing up. Mm -hmm. And when you take away the struggle, they grow up to be weak. They're not strong enough to survive because we've coddled them too much. And we coddle them out of love, not realizing that we're actually killing them. Mm -hmm. we're, we're cursing them to a weak existence. So for me, that word coddling, I was like, that's it. And so in this book, he talks about three, he said, basically says that all of our all of these problems are the result of failed parenting strategies, which mm -hmm. that whole act of coddling itself is a failed strategy. The idea of making life easy for the kids. Mm -hmm. um, but so the, so we, let's talk about the three premises he has. The first one being um, anti-fragility, which is the which can be summed up in the idea that that which doesn't kill us makes us weaker. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you see in the millennial population. How do you see that playing out? Well, it's interesting to zoom in and zoom out of that. It goes with the idea of what was perpetuated, I believe, was prepare the road for the child, not the child for the road. And to use semantics, you said the word, I'm being kind to the chicken by helping him break out. But you're not being kind to the chicken because in the end result, you're actually making it way weaker. You're being nice. Being nice in the moment actually is kind of a gross thing because it usually comes at the sacrifice of, the person you're being nice to and yourself. So if you are trying to be kind to somebody, you're going to give them the techniques and the tools and the, and the knowledge as far as like how to think, potentially how to interpret their own emotions to lean into resistance, to realize like the obstacle is the way. And a lot of times when we are presented with obstacles, we haven't had enough resistance in our life because what was it? The no child left behind thing got established like in the early 2000s. So it didn't really matter what your grades were. You still got pushed through. And then colleges became more widely available. So whether it be junior college or, or ascending higher. Um, and then when you get into the workforce, it kind of became this, do you have a degree? Do you have a trace of, of experience that you can actually relay? There's been really no hard stuff. There's there up until now, up until COVID, and maybe even you can reference 9-11, there's been no real dramatic events that forced us to come together and, and resist. So when we're presented with these obstacles in front of us, a lot of people don't believe that you have to work for them, that they should just come to you. And when we're presented with this this resistance, we don't even know how to lean into it with specific action or how to feel about it or interpret where to go. And and so people just give up or they not only give up in the action, but they remain static in their own life. Mm -hmm. And 
that is, I think, a result of the the being nice versus the being kind thing. It's it's you were trying to we were trying to protect these kids from experiencing any form of pain or resistance or being told that they're wrong or being told that they aren't equipped at the time, but they have the equipment there. So they don't know how to lean into it and actually grow. And I'm seeing that a lot with, especially right now with COVID and and people being stuck at home and being told not to talk to their friends or talk to their family. It's been driving a lot of wedges in between like pivotal relationships and they don't know how to start to question things themselves, especially in the information age. Like what do you, what do you listen to? But thinking critically, I think is going to be a skill that we can all gain to develop in this. And that is going to, resist that anti-fragility thing. Yeah, I see that when I, um, especially with trying to mentor um, students or young doctors, and there's, and there's this point where you, you have to yourself experience um, the patient who misinterprets everything you say, the patient who cannot ever be satisfied no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hurts me to put them in the position where they have to just little birdie fly <laughs> You have to do this and you might crash into the ground, but I hope you fly. But it's like, it hurts to put him in that position, but you realize that if I don't put you in that position, I'm actually doing you a disservice because I can't always do it for you. And the only way for you to do it and get good at it is to experience it. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to experience failure to ever get good. And that does seem to be somewhat of a lost concept that we just have to put ourselves in those positions. It's uh, it, it reminds me of, it wasn't maybe a month or so ago. I was in the backyard and um, my Doberman would not eat. She was obsessed with something in the corner and I couldn't figure out what it was. And as I'm sitting there on the chair, I hear this weird squawking that I've never heard before. I look up and there's a hawk sitting on the corner of the house next door. Mm-hmm. And then a little while later, I hear more noise. And I look up and there's two hawks sitting on the corner and these mm-hmm. hawks are staring down the Doby and she's staring down them. And I can't figure out why everybody's in a standoff. And then I hear this crazy fluttering in, a, in the palm tree in the corner where she had been obsessed. Mm-hmm. Turns out what was happening was mommy and daddy uh, Hawk had little baby Hawk who was needing to fly for the first time. Oh. And little baby Hawk needed to hit the air. And mommy and daddy recognized that if baby Hawk didn't hit the air, there was a Dobie at the bottom waiting for him. Oh, um, and right about that time, baby Hawk jumped out of the tree, fell like a rock and about seven feet above the ground. Wings came out, caught a gust of air and woof, off oh. they went. And mommy and daddy chased after it. And my Dobie looked extremely disappointed. (laughs) Um, And I was like, good, you eat dog food now. Um, But it's like, it's so dramatic. And it feels like, yes, this is a life or death situation. I think in our offices, it's not truly life and death, but it can feel like that. Mm -hmm. And, but that is what toughens us up is those Mm -hmm. hard situations. And And, and I think that, yeah, the, people are very, very addicted to security right now. And I think the security of the branch or the security of where you're sitting is a lot more tangible than your your ability to test your fundamental strength. So knowing that you can fly, knowing that you can resist is way less secure in the beginning moment than sitting where you statically are. So people people freeze. They don't know how to make decisions. And that's also another parenting tactic as well. Presenting kids with small enough decisions when they're young enough that they learn how to make those small decisions. And then as they grow, they increasingly become bigger and bigger. 
And if they don't even know how to make decisions, A versus B, how are they going to trust at all their, their strength? Because they've never actually tested it. Mm-hmm. And now you present somebody with a choice, whether to take control of their health and their life, really, or to sit statically. It's a big responsibility. And it took me a, a while, and I think it's actually something that I just realized this year. Healing and health can be one of the most intimidating responsibilities to take on for some people because there's no reward in not being disabled. When you're disabled, people will do things for you. People will grant you grace. People will, um, I guess, in essence, feel sorry for you, for, for lack of a better word. So they will give you pardon for things that you say you cannot do. And they'll say, oh, it's okay because you have migraines. Oh, it's okay because... You have hormonal. It's okay because your thyroid isn't good. It's okay. Insert whatever. Mm-hmm. There is no uh, lifting up of people that are perfectly capable and actually very powerful. So there's a huge responsibility in being healthy, and not a lot of people want to take that on, especially if they've already experienced the the niceness, aka kindness, of people around them for taking care of them. So they get addicted to the security of knowing like, oh, it's okay if I don't do this or go all in because I have so-and-so to take care of me. When realizing taking care of yourself is very liberating and also requires a lot of responsibility and has immense reward later on. How do you think we go about convincing, um, convincing millennials of this in a way that does not offend their... I don't even know what the right word is. <laughs> their Ego. sense of autonomy, their sense of I already know it all. <laughs> don't have to say that. <laughs> um, man. It's it's one of the when you ask me that question, I'm sure that I have a lot of subtle ways that I that I do that. When I communicate with people, the first thing I, I tell them is doctors are not the authority, no matter what doctor it is. We work for you. So our responsibility is to not take away your opportunity to learn, but more to, to empower you and give you the choices and, and give you the knowledge and the tools to, to know that you can heal and take over, take over your life, essentially. And so I tell people exactly what's going on, what other people may call it, what things they can do to help themselves, and also tell them that there's a passive portion of this where I'm physically doing something to you, the adjustment and, and also giving them knowledge. And then there's an active portion where they have to make daily choices. And when I present it as like small daily choices that they make, I think they fundamentally start to learn how to make decisions and it's not necessarily harmful to their ego because they're prepped for it. So it's not really telling them that they're wrong for sitting in the space that they're at, but knowing that there's there's steps to take control. So I, I don't really say like you're wrong for for trying to sit in this or you're wrong for allowing people to cater to you. I tell them, hey, there's a portion right now where I am going to cater to you. And guess what? That's going to that's gonna end pretty quickly. Um, so as long as I'm specific and, and intent, I'm going to help you to the point where you're going to feel this. And then when you feel like this, this is when you're going to go and do all these other things. And I think they, they, they're able to get gather momentum with that because they know that there's phases and there's a start and a stop. Yeah. That's really good. That's good. Yeah. Excellent. 
Um, so let's switch to myth number two then, which we've kind of talked about a little bit through these other ones, but it's the myth that feelings are the ultimate judge of reality, <laughs> which in our, in our space means they come in and go, it hurts here, do something here. And then you do these, then you do what you do. And you're like, man, that was brilliant. I did the greatest job ever. And they're like, yeah, but it still hurts here. Do something here. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Um, facts don't care about feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I honestly explain a lot of biomechanics. I, That's as far as, go. as far as in chiropractic, I, I explained to them like, Hey, the spine is one organ, so we can have pain in these types of patterns and then start explaining the difference between disc pain, bone pain, nerve pain, um, organ expression, chronic in inflammation that's coming from your diet um, and the likelihood it's coming from, from diet or lifestyle or sleep or whatever it may be. And yeah, you have these feelings now, but then let's zoom out and be objective. Okay. I'm going to fix this and this is going to have a downstream effect for the place you're pointing at or a downstream effect for your migraines or a downstream effect of whatever. So it is, I guess in essence, when I explain it like that, it's, it's a delay of gratification. And again, when, when you prep people for that and have the idea, um, like perfect example, I had a patient come in the other day and she was limping really, really bad. So her right hip, she's like, oh, it's burning all the way down my leg. Every time I take a step, it's, it's on fire. And she's, she's like extending her hip and trying to avoid this. And in essence, like she's a 20 year old or 25 year old trying to, operate on a, on a non-functional leg. And it wasn't even her hip. It was, it was a fifth lumbar. She didn't have pain sitting down. She didn't have pain standing up. The only thing that was actually bothering her was like the nerve itself and the mechanical irritation because she was limping. So I set her fifth lumbar, this thing moves perfect and ice her a little bit. She stands up, she goes, Oh, I feel like I can actually walk, but my hip still hurts. My hip still hurts. I'm like, okay, but is the nerve pain still there? And she says, no, but my hip still hurts. I'm like, okay, Let's identify bone pain now. You've been just compensating for this and, and overly weight-bearing, so the bone is tired. So what we need to do is get you moving normally, get you resting this thing, and then that thing is going to go away. And then one of the things she kept festering, but when's it going to go away? When's it going to go away? When's it going to go away? And I'm like, okay, give me a day. Let me know how you are tomorrow. And she happened to have my, my cell phone number, so she texted me the next day. She's like, hey, I'm like 80% better. Okay, just a single day of delaying gratification got her that much better. Now, how, how much better is she going to be in a week, in a month, knowing that I gave her a little bit of the knowledge and the tools? But again, that kind of taps into the, the, the emotional aspect of when you're in pain and your brain is not firing correctly and you're not actually using the, the higher centers of your cortex, you don't even know how to interpret the difference between fear, pain, um, comfort, anything, you're kind of locked into this anxious fear, tense state, and you have to like break that pattern in them. And I think a lot of that is telling people, Hey, let's lean into the pain just enough and then wait and then watch it go away. Yeah. I don't know if that yeah. made sense at all, but it's, Oh no, absolutely. Actually, that was great. Cause that is in a, in a shorter version of that. That's basically what I do is you have to, um, take the pain they're feeling that's that's um that's got all their attention focused on that one spot 
and relate it back to how the dysfunction is leading to this. But I also think mm -hmm. that when people start to recognize that just because something hurts doesn't mean that's where the problem is, mm -hmm. it opens them up to a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so funny that when students come and follow my office, they'll sometimes come out going, wow, your patient just said they had a migraine. And they're pretty sure it's coming from their upper back. Like people in my class don't even know that. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, because once it was explained to them, and once they start looking for it, they realize, oh, you know what? I probably slept funny. I screwed up this spot that's not in my head, but it's showing up as headaches because I have to balance my head over this dysfunctional joint. And they, mm -hmm. they start telling the story. <laughs> Students are like, hey, I didn't know it worked like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just because they didn't, once they get the story, then they go, okay, I can work with this. And, and then ultimately, most people want more information. Mm -hmm. And the more they have, the more they can work with and the better off they are. And we're, we're in the information age right now. And I, I think that helps us and also hurts us at the same time because people don't know what to listen to. And, yeah, and absolutely. And drawing that back is a watery communication style that maybe a Gen X resonates with will penetrate a millennial mind if given enough information. So you don't, I don't think you need to hide behind momentum, emotion, um, volume, tone, those types of things. You can say things very cleanly, directly, informationally with conviction, you don't need to yell at it, but with conviction that when they have enough, they're able to, to snap into that critical aspect of like, Hey, that makes sense in my mind. Let me sit in this for a minute, a day. And then they start to actually change. And then they start to learn a little bit more like nervous system adaptability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the, uh, this whole myth of, um, with feelings being the ultimate judge, it has an upside too, because what I find with millennials is they are probably more receptive than others. When it comes to, they come in feeling bad, you adjust them and they leave feeling great. Mm -hmm. That is more profound for them than it sometimes is for other people. Um, people who are Gen Xers are more pragmatic about it. They're like, well, maybe it's a fluke. Maybe you got lucky. <laughs> and then they've got all these reasons why maybe it wasn't that great. Whereas yeah. a millennial comes in and goes, man, I was feeling awful and now I feel great. You did something powerful. I want to know more about it. And, mm -hmm. and you see that response. So there is definitely an upside to it. It's still a myth to think that feelings um, are the ultimate judge of reality. But there is an upside to people thinking that because it does make it more profound because what we do can have such a profound effect on how you feel. Mm -hmm. o overwhelmingly, one of the things I, I hear, which, I mean, it probably helps my ego more than anything, which... Uh, is not a marker of anything. Um, when, whenever I get a profound result like that, when, the, when they have that feeling in the moment, overwhelmingly, the phrase that I hear is you're like a magician. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, you're a doctor, you're a healer. You did this. You're a magician. So when people experience magic, like if they're labeling it as magic, you've automatically tapped into this place that, Things are more possible than they ever thought before. So you expanded their brain just enough. And if you're expanding someone's brain in, in the direction of healing, I think that's just another tool to, to overcome fear, to realize that there, there's a lot more than this physical experience, than, than the emotions in the moment, and realizing that emotions are very seasonal. They come, in the, they, come they splash hard, they go. Um, and a lot of people get locked into those feelings, thinking that they're forever, and whether it be a good feeling or a bad feeling, it's, it's knowing that anything can change anything 
in the moment if you allow it or decide it so and 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 that just goes to show like it's the feelings are not they're not the marker of reality they're the interpretation of the experience and if you're experiencing magic good bad whatever it may be you're gonna you're gonna staple that on on top of this current view and be like hey wait a minute maybe i had it wrong before or maybe i'm maybe I'm doing it right. And the story that I'm living by is, is where I need to go. And just, and just the acknowledgement of like feelings are not forever. Like it's, they come go, it's normal. And sometimes the experience you have with a person or um, a hike or a healer can change your fundamental reality. Yeah. And yet it's funny how people do think it's forever. Like the number of times, especially lately, I hear this more and more people come in like i have pain is it going to be this way forever mm -hmm. and no most pain like even if we did nothing most pain is not for forever yeah uh, it's going to change in some capacity we still want to fix the underlying dysfunction but the pain itself will probably not stay exactly as it is forever but mm -hmm. it's funny how quickly people will jump to that conclusion that it will yeah i love the the simple explanation i think i learned it from you um but the body does not like inflammation so when they hurt their back You'll, you'll hear this a lot with like recurring uh, spine issues. I hear it a lot with low back. Like, oh, I, the first time I threw out my back, I was like 15. And that person's like 40 now. And they're like, oh, I hurt it. And then I like lay down for a week, a month, however long. And then it's fine for another six months. And then I do it again. It's fine for another six months. And I do it again. And now it's happening more and more. And I'm like, okay, let's think about this. The body doesn't like swelling. And you can actually go into the biochemical mechanism of that like it, it turns acidic the immune response actually happens the body is not going to perpetuate that immune response so it's going to naturally pull that away until you irritate it again so people can be pain-free for a while and since the injury is still there it just takes a sneeze or putting on your pants to bring that back i tell people you don't need a sexy story to throw out your back especially if the injury is already there and and when they hear that they're like oh i never fixed the problem just my body was doing a good job protecting me and when people have that education of like, okay, even when I'm not in pain, it might be good to be proactive about this, strengthen it, get my spine checked, whatever it may be. Um, but when people also hear that, that expands their brain to realize like, hey, their body is is pretty remarkable. And also, it there's a responsibility to actually look at things and take care of it. Yeah, people will come in and they'll, they'll, they'll tell that story about how I'm bad that I'm good, that I'm bad that I'm good. And they focus on it's so awful that I keep feeling bad. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's amazing that you feel good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's because a you never fix the perfect flip. <laughs> so it's actually the fact that your body is such an amazing compensator is the only reason you ever feel good at all. Mm -hmm. So it's actually the, the amazing part is the fact that your body can make you feel good in spite of the dysfunction. Not that you feel bad sometimes. It makes sense that you feel bad. You've had a dysfunction the whole mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's remarkable that you felt good at all as opposed to the the inverse of why am I experiencing bad? Yeah. Like we and know why you're third, experiencing bad. <laughs> yeah. The third myth is, oh yes, I remember. Um, in every situation, there's a good guy and a bad guy. <laughs> so they want to be on the good guy's side and they want yeah. to destroy, eliminate, and make go away all people on the bad side. It's their civic duty. <laughs> and the funny part of this is the comprehension. They can't comprehend that. What if both sides are good to an extent? Mm -hmm. And what they really can't comprehend is what if both sides are bad? Mm -hmm. 
So how does how does this show up, especially when a lot of our patients are um, just culturally so uh, medically addicted, shall we say? Mm. Um, then the inclination is if they see medicine as the good guy who's trying to save them, there can only be one good guy. So that mm -hmm. automatically makes us the bad guy. Mm. And so we're trying to convince them that we're the good guy. But if we convince them that we're the good guy, that now makes medicine the bad guy. Mm -hmm. They can't conceive of the fact that maybe we're both the good guy to a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. <laughs> or they can't like that. They can't deal with that or that maybe medicine has its place and we have ours and that they can coexist. I, I always love the quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald where he said the truest sign of an intelligent mind is the ability to hold two competing thoughts at the same time and still function. Mm. That is an art form that is largely lost today. That people oh, yeah. hold one one train of thought and they just go full throttle on it. <laughs> so, yep. um, so we're basically fighting against that by telling them, okay, I, I mean, honestly, we don't, we're not usually trying to destroy medicine, although there's a lot of unethical things in medicine, but that's not a function of medicine itself. That's a function of human beings. Yep. Um, but we're not trying to destroy medicine. We're just trying to explain, here's what we can do that benefits you. And there's nobody else in the healthcare space who does anything like what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But in their mind that what they hear is me good, everyone else bad. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so that, that can be a source of conflict. So how do you, how do you address that one? Um, I think it's fundamental human nature to create structure and automation. And when you can, you can position a belief, good, bad, it's completely created. Um, you have the people that are indoctrinated very much into the Western model where it's, I have a headache, I have a tummy ache, I have whatever it may be. I run to my medical doctor. And if we're even speaking objectively, modern medicine is not equipped for the, the things we're seeing now. Like mm -hmm. it's not equipped for, it's really not equipped for spine pain. It's not equipped for chronic inflammatory issues, metabolic issues. It was never meant for that. If I get hit by a bus, take me to the hospital. If I have reflux or a really bad disc, keep me away from there. Like I, that's not a place that I belong. And so being able to communicate that everybody has their role and there's not necessarily good, good, bad. It's just those are titles we put on it to to create structure and to create security in our ego. I, I tell people like everybody has their place. I'm going to show up and I'm going to do what I know how to do to help your body heal. Sometimes you need a little help. Okay, you crawled in here and you're in blinding pain and you can't even sit on my table. Okay, maybe we need an NSAID or something like that for a day or a week. But knowing that everybody has their place and their role, and then also, I think it, it breaks down to the communication aspect of knowing that things are going to be in phases and seasonal. And, and just because I'm saying something different doesn't make me wrong or them wrong. It's just a position that we take based on what we believe. And I tell people, like, I believe everything in your body. I believe you have the blueprints to health, like inside you. You have the pharmacy inside you. Just sometimes the, the relay mechanisms aren't very effective. So I'm going to help those, those mechanisms. And when I position it like that, people, people don't really question it. I don't know if I'm, I'm in a box now because I've been in practice a little bit longer and I'm getting referrals from people that are strong advocates. Um, and that's another thing too, for, for people that are building a practice, people are not 
you'll never build a practice on happy customers or happy patients. That's not what works. You need raving fans. You need raving fans to actually tell their story and your story. So the more you can relay like, hey, I'm not the bad guy. I just think a little bit differently. And it's worth questioning the model that I've been in, especially if someone's been in ill health for a while. And I'm seeing that over and over again now. It's I'm seeing women in their 20s, early 30s. I have yet to come into contact with somebody that doesn't have some form of sleep issue, hormonal issue, musculoskeletal issue, metabolic issue. Like we're dealing with a really, really sick population. And I even just present them with the question of like, what you've been doing, has it been working? Okay, let's maybe expand it a little bit more. And, and let's think about the things you can do. Let's talk about the free stuff first that you can do in your life. That's actually counterintuitive to what they hear online or in the news. Let's think about the counterintuitive stuff that you've never even thought of before. And let's explore that. And then not saying the, the prior way was wrong, but maybe it just isn't going to work for you right now. And just going back to the seasonality of everything, what you feel right now is not forever what you're experiencing right now is not forever. It's right now we need to take steps to unlock some possibilities. And when we label good, bad, or indifferent on them, we restrict ourselves. And people, people are pretty receptive to that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, another, another thing that comes up for me, um, kind of tying all three of these together is, from a millennial perspective, what is the difference between arrogance and confidence? Because I know these often get mm. confused. And I think they get confused for different reasons based on generations. So that's why I'm kind of looking for a, what causes a millennial to determine that something is arrogance versus confidence. Because, mm. you know, I think about, I actually was thinking about this this morning. I don't even know why. But I was thinking about Muhammad <laughs> Ali. Yeah. And for his generation, when you forget that people like Mike Tyson and a bunch of other people came after Muhammad Ali, for his time period, he was the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were turned off by him saying that mm -hmm. because they said, oh, he's so arrogant. But he was yeah. also stating a fact. Everybody mm -hmm. generally agrees he was the greatest of all time, yeah. especially for his era. And so it's funny how when you state the facts and you state them dogmatically, there are going to be that portion of the population who says, well, that's just arrogance. Um, mm -hmm. And as Muhammad Ali himself said, it's only, it's only bragging if you can't do it. <laughs> Yeah. I, that was his exact quote. It's only bragging if you can't do it. If you can yeah. do it, and um, so it, 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 there's a point where it kind of is what it is. If that's what you can do, that's what you can do. What causes a millennial to decide, or what kind of things trigger them to make them go, "No, that's arrogance. I don't like that." Hmm. Or, or do do millennials even look down on arrogance? Is there a point I, at which I, arrogance could be beneficial? I don't even think that macro. The difference is the differences are obvious. So you can present yourself as confident or arrogant, and they might even be interpreted as the same thing. Like yeah. to to me at least, confidence is something very rooted in like an identity, where you have a strong belief. You're not going to waver in the wind. Um, experiences that may take the ego down are not going to take away your confidence and your ability to perform. Where arrogance is more, I believe, airy and more subject to outside interpretation and experience. So when, when someone is coming off as arrogant, they might be speaking more absolutist. So they're going to be more like, 
I'm the best. Everyone else sucks. No one knows what they're doing, whatever it may be. And that actually is, I think, a turnoff for a lot of millennials where I think we've come to the consciousness age now where people are questioning authority constantly. Oh, and yeah, more so than ever. Yeah, more so than ever. And when they hear arrogance, I think they they do slap a label on that of not believable. So if you're going to come out with this fire behind you and being arrogant, and I think also with arrogance, you're going to be maligning a lot of people to lift yourself up with confidence. You don't necessarily need to do that. It's more inward of like, Hey, this is, this is my gift. This is my ability. This is what I'm going to do for you. And this is what you're capable of. Blah, blah, blah. It's more all encompassing, more rooted where arrogance is going to come off more. This is what you need to do. Everyone else is stupid. This, this person that said this is wrong. Like, it, it comes at the price of cutting other people down to artificially lift yourself up. And I think that is a big turnoff for most millennials because it reminds them of probably failed parenting tactics, the schooling system, things that they weren't receptive in the past. And when you bring back those flashes of those emotional memories, they're, they're going to be disengaged and turned off to that. So being confident and know you what you can give versus arrogant and what you will force upon somebody is, is quite a bit different in the interpretation. Yeah. I, I think of things like sports where you've got mm -hmm. these sports experts and they predict who's going to win and they predict what's going to happen. And they're perpetually wrong. There's <laughs> no loss of credibility for them. Yeah. Like I was watching one March madness. One of, they were teasing one of the, uh, one of the professionals because they've got almost every single pick wrong. I had actually done a bracket where I flipped a coin. And I actually did the entire thing by a 50-50 chance based on the flip of a coin. And mm -hmm. that bracket did better than this professional analyst. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That means you lose all credibility. You're not a professional. You're not an analyst. But there's no punishment for that. And so mm -hmm. you're right. When it comes to us presenting ourselves, it's arrogance when I make it all about me. I know. I know the answers. I've done this. I can do this. And it's all about me. It becomes arrogance. But it's confidence when I can say, I've been down this road. I know how this usually goes. You have a role to play in this. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what we expect to have happen. If at any point it gets derailed, I've had the experience of having seen this. I will help us get back on track and then we'll figure out what you need to do to play your role. Yeah. That's, that's confidence from experience. That's not arrogance of this always works. It never fails and it's gonna be perfect. I, in fact, I tell people regularly, the body is tricky. It's so brilliant and so amazing at compensating. It'll hide the problem so we can't find it. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll do all these things. And so we have to ferret it out. And the only advantage I have over you is that I've done it more times. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's, and even then I know from my mentors who are some of them almost twice my age, mm -hmm. even at their age, it's like, yeah, it's still not perfect. <laughs> the body will still trick you. You no. learn a lot more and you get better at it and you, and you catch on to it a little, a few more times, but yeah. there's never a point at which you perfectly understand exactly what it's going to do and how it's going to do it. Yeah. The, so. the communication style that I've, I've developed, I use it for a, a large majority of my practice. There are certain people you need to edit as far as your presentation, but you don't edit the content. Um, but I tell people in, in a very humbling way, hey, let's see how that does. And if I did my job right and everything that we interpreted here, you're going to feel a lot better. If we missed, you're you're probably not, and we need to keep hunting. So I'm not speaking in absolutism. That was it. You're going to feel better. I'm the greatest. Like, that's not real. 
It's, it, it's very much of like, even with all these tools that I have, I have my, my scope, my x-ray, motion palpation, static palpation, the history. At best, it's a 90% guess. And yeah, I'm, I've gotten really, really good at guessing. But look, look at it, it's still a guess. And, and it's okay that I'm wrong or that I miss a little bit. But giving people the, the knowledge of like, hey, we're in this as a team. And yeah, I've done this quite a few times now and I'm pretty good at it, but even still, I'm not going to be perfect. And so the more grace you grant me and the more grace you grant yourself, the quicker everybody's going to be, everyone's going to be better. And people are pretty receptive to that. It's, it's, it's knowing that people play a role, play a part, have a responsibility. And, and it comes off, I believe that does sound confident because I'm giving them what to expect as far as, what I expect and when they should expect. And it's not maligning anybody and it's not saying anything that could be potentially off putting as far as that's not fear driven. Um, yeah. Yeah. That to me, that is where it gets hard because one of the hardest questions I think to this day is when somebody says, well, I went and saw Dr. So-and-so and they didn't help me a bit. And then you came in and it seemed like to me, like you did almost the same thing, except it fixed me when you did it. What was the difference? Mm -hmm. that's the hardest thing because like, I don't want to throw them under the bus. I don't want to do those things at the same time. I want the patient to understand that how their body works and that specificity does matter and subtle differences make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I have to focus on the, what did we do differently and mm -hmm. kind of ignore the question of what did they do? Well, what they do, I don't even know, yeah. but here's what we did and here's why it worked. Uh, Cause I don't know if there's any value in, in pointing out somebody else's mistakes. Yeah, because ultimately we don't know. We weren't there. We weren't in the room. We didn't experience it. And and people ask that a lot. They're like, oh, do you get patients from other chiropractors? I'm like, yeah, pretty frequently. And they're like, oh, why? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe they needed new eyes. I'm looking at the same situation, just in new eyes. And that alone, people are receptive to that. I don't know if it gives a direct answer, which I don't think in essence it's trying to. Um, it's just saying we're different and we it's okay that we look at it different and that's going back to the, the good, bad, like they're not bad. I, th I think most physicians, if not majority of all physicians come at healthcare with a good heart and they want to genuinely help people, but they're limited in their, their lenses. So we we're all, we can only be held responsible for the things that we're aware of and they're not even aware of what we do. So how can I say like, they're bad or they're incompetent or they're whatever if they don't even know with a lens of like hey maybe i need to be a little bit more specific or complex or set this deeper or set this in a specific order um like how do i hold them accountable for that just, yeah i just hold myself accountable to it yeah yeah definitely yeah, it's funny. The whole communication thing is a tricky thing. That's why I wanted to spend a month hitting different angles of it, because it is a different thing. And it's one of the odd things that there is, there are generation gaps. And it's not that I, I'm not going to say like, <laughs> some people do it be like, oh, the millennials are what's wrong with everything in the world. It's just recognizing <laughs> that people see things differently. And that our generation and how we grow up in the environment we grew up does make a difference. I see it even in my own family, I'm five and a half years older than my youngest brother. And yet the mm -hmm. difference between me being born in 1975 and him being born in 1980, he's mm -hmm. quite a bit better with computers than I am. Uh, my dad's a mm. computer engineer, so 
um, who built missiles. So we had computers <laughs> in our in our house from the time we were little, and I learned programming mm -hmm. language when I was little. So we were around computers all the time. And so I do pretty well with computers. I think I'm fine with computers. I don't think I have a problem. But then my brother starts doing things and I'm like, how in the world do you even know how to do that? And he goes, I don't know. I just push bus and stuff happens. So <laughs> it's like, but, but he had them around for so much more. And I think to myself, like my kids asked me, my, my daughter was asking me if my parents let me have a cell phone when I was little. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, no, when I was little, I used to get tangled up in the cord on the wall phone. Yep. And the one wall phone back. in the kitchen. <laughs> and my, my daughter's like, what's a wall phone and what's a cord? <laughs> And you realize, you know, when you, these differences, they do affect how you grow up and how you perceive the world. And it's true. Millennials have grown up with so much information right at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. But information is only power if you know how to use it. And obviously, in this day and age, if you know how to determine what's true and what's false. And that was mm -hmm. never an issue for me when I was a kid. We, we were mm -hmm. given information, but we didn't have to determine what was true and what was false. Because there was like a built-in filter as mm -hmm. things came to you that everything that was not true just kind of fell away. And mm -hmm. you didn't have to worry about that issue. So it, it's made people, I think it's made people more skeptical because when everything's mm -hmm. getting through, you have to create your own filter and skeptic, skepticism and those kind of things are your best filter for deciding what you let through and what you don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of us that are older are having to learn to develop that when we never had to have it before. And so it does make it when people talk to you, your very first question is, can I trust this person? Are they being mm -hmm. honest with me? Are they mm -hmm. just trying to take advantage of me? Do they just want money? And that's like, that's become every day now. I find that I, when I do my mail, I sit over a trash can because more than half of it gets thrown straight in the trash because it's mm -hmm. not trustworthy. It's garbage. It's meant mm -hmm. to deceive. It's meant to manipulate. Um, mm -hmm. Phone calls. When I remember when I was in school, um, I had an answering machine uh, in my dorm, and I loved to come back and find there was a message because somebody had left me a message. Now people mm -hmm. leave me messages, and most of them are junk. And it's hard to actually determine which ones are valuable because so many of them are junk. And I don't have mm -hmm. time to sift through all the junk. So it's, it very much has changed. And so figuring out how to communicate and how to get through some of these barriers are, um, are obstacles that we all have to face and figuring out how to communicate with millennials. Because truthfully, it's not about manipulating them or anything like that. We want to help people. But a big mm -hmm. part of our ability to help people is being able to give them true, honest communication that, that gives them an effect that changes how they live their life. But... Mm -hmm. That only that only happens if we can get through and give them a message that they can actually take and use and embody in action. Mm -hmm. Honest and direct communication. That's the simpler, the better, the less they have to sift through the better avoiding decision fatigue. I mean, we're very uh, first, I think I heard the quote from you, but then I read the book and the only defense for an over communicated mind is an oversimplified one. Mm -hmm. I think it's by, by design. I mean, we're constantly bombarded with, social media, ads, calls, texts, all these decisions we have to make throughout the day. And so we're, when we're presented with things that truly will have an impact on our mind, on our body, on our health, we're too tired to be able to sift through. And I think building a healthy amount of, amount of skepticism is a really, really good filter, good defense mechanism. And we, we only have so much willpower. <laughs> So taking that into account, structuring your day in a way that you can automate the things that are not helping you and the things that will help you, that will propel your, your, your mind, your body, your career, your relationships are going to come to the forefront when checking social media and, and scrolling through those things or watching the news or whatever it may be, 
um, it fatigues you. It diminishes your will. And then you're going to be that much less receptive to the doctor in front of you trying to give you these essential tools. So it's yeah. structure of the day. So you win the day. And then that way you can actually hear those things. And then we don't really have the, the liberty to tell people how to live their day. But if we structure things very simple, direct, this is what you have. This is what we're going to do to fix it. These are the things you have to do. Go. Like the less technical, the better. You don't need the big, sexy words. You don't need the doctor words. Like people don't want to hear those anyway. When people hear words that they don't understand, they actually hear it as condescending. They hear it as arrogant. So if you don't want to appear arrogant, speak to their level. Like don't dumb yourself down, but speak in a way that they hear it. That was the hardest thing for me with teaching students is I'm so used to communicating in simple words and, um, and analogies and things like that, that I would start talking to students and they're like, I don't think this guy knows anything about the right <laughs> word. Like, I haven't used those words in 20 years, nor do I intend to start again. Like, yeah. I, I, sometimes I use them, like you read through material and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that word. But yeah, it's true that in communication, it's like, yeah, you need to understand the word, and but mainly you need to understand the concept, mm-hmm. but you don't need to use those words on patients because they don't understand anyway. And you're right. They take it as condescending and, and rude. And I've forgotten about that quote that you just said, but I remember it's brilliant that that's one of the things that in my mind has been plugging me is that we live because we're so over communicated, we live in a massively oversimplified society. And the number mm-hmm. of people that I've had, just as an example, who are talking about COVID and they're like, it's basically the flu. And I'm like, it's basically not the flu, but when we <laughs> we're going to come to some massively wrong conclusions because we've oversimplified so much. And it's like, we just keep dumbing things down more and more and more. So we're, we're speaking in generalizations that we can categorize that we we're teaming the unknown with the known people don't like the unknown. And again, whether it's you're teaching students, like they hate the unknown. They don't know how to move their body there. They don't know how to look at an x-ray. They don't even know what a listing is. The unknown is very uncomfortable. Leaning into the unknown is pain. It's the obstacle. And then same thing with patients. They don't even know that there's another side of healthcare. So gently putting them in the position that they kind of realize it themselves, not appearing condescending. And then also giving them the responsibility and the tools and the knowledge to, to take it on, then I, I think there's a less, less of an overwhelming feeling um, because it is giving them the, the lens of, hey, I can do this. It's been done before. And it's being said in words that I actually understand. Yeah. yeah well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fun conversation. Um, it's been insightful for me to try to see inside the millennial mind and kind of see how some of these conflicts happen and how we can try to troubleshoot them. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. I love, love being on here. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Gunner for joining me. I hope you found today's episode to be helpful in considering how best to communicate in your practice. Join us again next week as we will be continuing this communication theme. I'll be sharing with you some fundamental principles for communication. From there, I have some great guests lined up as we will discuss some particular aspects of communication. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.